I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey there, XPRIZE fans. Welcome to the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics. Here we meet the world's brightest minds across a kaleidoscope of disciplines, cultures, and points of view. I'm your host, Sofia Tapia. If you're new to the show, in each episode, you will hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and change makers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. For today's episode, we will hear from artificial intelligence pioneer Joshua Bengio, a Turing award-winning computer scientist, AI XPRIZE advisory board member, and one of the godfathers of machine learning. Joshua takes us on a deep dive into how machine learning is helping us in the fight against COVID-19. Joshua pulls the curtains back on two AI projects, one around the prediction of contagiousness and a second on antiviral drug discovery. Both projects lead to a discussion about the need to change our economic and social structures to maximize collective well-being. All right, here we go. Today, I thought I would go and give examples of two projects that I've been involved with since the month of March that were motivated by the fight against COVID-19. Because machine learning has gone out of labs and into society and is being deployed, it's really important that scientists and engineers who are involved in all this understand their new responsibility, that their work has impact and they have to be mindful of that impact. And to go back to the collective aspect of things that each of us, with our expertise, we know we may be very strong in our branch, but we are babies and, and blind people as it comes to so many other parts of human knowledge and understanding. And so we need to rely on others to understand, especially things like, you know, what's going to be the impact of my work or what could be the impact of my work on society. There are people who study these things professionally. And I'm just a machine learning scientist, but I'm not a sociologist, for example, and I'm not an ethicist and I'm not an economist and so on. And so you need to work with other people. And we'll see that in the examples that I'll talk about today. Before going there, let me also give you a little bit of my concern looking forward with respect to the development of technology and, and AI in particular. And I use a phrase that I find very nice to capture this idea, idea that there's a wisdom race, a race between the progress of technology and our collective wisdom. So I think our collective wisdom is 
improving. Uh, sometimes it looks like we're stepping backwards, but you know, if you look over decades or centuries, it does look like we're becoming collectively wiser that we're reducing pain in the world in many ways. However, the pace at which we're introducing new tools in, in, in the world is, is scary because those tools can be used in a way that could be detrimental to collective well-being. So in particular, powerful tools like AI can be used for bringing a lot of good, but they can also be used by those who are in power or those who might grab power thanks to those tools. And uh, those tools can thus be dangerous for the majority of us. That is why it's so important to work with people who understand the social impact, to keep that in mind, and to not just think as a, say, scientist or as an engineer, but also as a citizen and a concerned one. I'm going to talk about two projects today. I'm going to talk about a project that has to do with contact tracing, and I'm going to talk about a project that has to do with discovering new drugs for antivirals. The first project, we call it COVI, and it's the work of a lot of people. There is an archive paper called the COVI White Paper, where you can find a lot more detail about that. I'll give you an outline of what we've been doing. Very early on, uh, as we were learning about the pandemics in February and March, we got to step out of our, I mean, I got to step out of my usual uh, comfort zone and having to read a lot about epidemiology. I learned about things like incubation periods, infectiousness, and the different states in which a person could be in the course of the disease, like a viral disease. So there are these four states that we really we care about in the spread of the disease. So each person could be susceptible, meaning they, they have not yet been infected. Uh, maybe they will never be, but they could. And then uh, they get in the exposed state where they have been infected, but it, it doesn't show yet. The virus is reproducing inside their body. Then they get to be infectious. So that is when there are enough viruses in your body that they can go out of your body and infect others. And then finally, normally you recover, your body kills off those viruses and you're in the last stage. So you can think of a kind of state machine where people can go through these and we'd like to understand better how people go from one to the other. And one of the important quantities is called a viral load. So the viral load is the amount of virus that you're uh, sending out into the world. Of course, it's going to depend on other things effectively, like, you know, if I'm wearing a mask, I'm going to send less virus outside of my body. But the, the amount that your body can produce is kind of characterized by this temporal curve where you see a peak during the incubation. So even before you see symptoms for uh, SARS-CoV-2, it turns out that you can become very infectious. So essentially how infectious you are to others, how, you know, what's the chance that if you spend time with someone else, you will be infecting them. What's interesting also to uh, ponder about this figure is that person normally gets to have clues about the fact that they're infectious only when they start having symptoms. And initially the symptoms might not be obvious. I mean, you may have a runny nose or a cough. It could be just a regular cold. Later symptoms become more obvious, but even before you have symptoms, you see this peak of viral load, which means that a lot of infections are actually happening by people who don't have any clue that they're infected. And in fact, that's one of the big problems with this virus, right? That a lot of the people are infecting others without knowing, 
by now, everybody knows that uh, this issue in, in February or March or April, a lot of people didn't realize. But by now, most people would change their behavior once they start having symptoms to try to take less risks in the sense of risk to others. In other words, uh, self-isolate, be more disciplined with uh, masks. So one of the interesting questions that this work is about is, can we help people know how infectious they are so they can act appropriately. The most important part is even before they have any information, they are pre-symptomatic, but they are infecting others, but also even early on when they start having symptoms, or even before they have a test, that they have symptoms, but they're not sure. Can we help them figure out how they should behave? Okay, so that's what we're trying to do here. And in order to do that, we built an epidemiological model, which we call an agent-based epidemiological model, in order to simulate different kinds of policies that agents could have in order to change their behavior based on the information they have. And also these policies would control what kind of information they might exchange with others. So if I think that I might be infectious, not only can I change my behavior, but I can tell my contacts, the people I spend time with, the, the people I encountered in the past, to tell them, hey, you know what, we met three days ago, and I now realize that I'm probably infected. So I, you know, I could have been infectious three days ago and you should be careful. Maybe you're infected too. Okay, so that kind of message can be sent between those agents. Now, the idea of course is um, to automate that, that process. Uh, people will do these kind of things spontaneously, but would like to make it easier and make sure we cover as many people as possible by using people's phones. If my phone has access to information because I entered it about my symptoms, potentially my test results, and also keeps track of which other phone, which other people implicitly I was close to in the recent past, then it can do all these things. It can compute those probabilities that I'm infected, that I'm infectious, use these probabilities or these expected values to inform others and to inform my own behavior. So that's the, that's the gist of what we're trying to achieve. If we look at what information is available potentially on a phone in order to make those recommendations and send those messages to others, you have four kinds of information. You have the contacts that you had with other people and the messages that they might have sent to you about their own believed infectiousness. You know, they think that, you know, they have a 50% chance of being infected or something. That's information you could get if they send, send you these messages. You have your symptoms that you have entered on the phone. Maybe it started with runny nose and now you have this weird coughing or even better, you've lost your sense of smell. And then you have test results. You know, maybe I did pass a test uh, one week ago or yesterday. Those test results, potentially that information could come directly from public health or it could be self entered that creates all kinds of potential problems. But for now, from a machine learning point of view, we can consider that we have this kind of information. And then we have sort of general background information about the person. We know age, for example, makes a big difference. We know that some medical conditions make you much more likely to become infected. So all of these informations can come into the prediction of infectiousness. So why do we predict infectiousness or contagiousness? There are two kinds of actions we want to take, as I said. There is changing my behavior and then changing your behavior if we've met before by sending you information that you could use to change your behavior. As far as my behavior is concerned, the most important variable is how contagious 
am I now? If, I, if I'm very contagious, then I should really isolate myself, maybe even go to quarantine. And that's, that's one kind of prediction is the current contagiousness. But for the messages I may send to the people I have met in the past, really what matters is the contagiousness that I think I had when I met them. So in the past, you're trying to do inference over past contagiousness, given the information that I have now, like maybe now I have symptoms. And uh, that means I, I, you know, probably was infectious three days ago. So these are the two kinds of things you want to predict, at least in our uh, framework. Then there's the question of privacy. Like, so what kind of information should we allow to be communicated between people or between a person and some uh, central server? I won't have time to go in a lot of these things, but there's a huge amount of work that is going on around the world and, and went in our project in the question of tension between privacy and, and the ability to make predictions. For example, those messages that I talked about uh, that kind of risk messages, how contagious did I think, uh, do I think that I was three days ago that I may send to you? I don't want to send too many bits about that because if I send you, for example, like a real value with a 32-bit, then someone receiving that information may be able to, by tr some sort of triangulation, figure out who I am. So one of the things we want to avoid with uh, privacy protection is for others to figure out that uh, I'm sick or that to know even worse, you know, where I was and who I met. So these kinds of information people don't want to share, at least not with everyone or anyone they met meet in the street, they might be willing to share some of these informations with governments, but again, probably don't want to share like where they were. Currently with manual contact tracing, you do share some of that information if you're sick. And so a lot of the current contact tracing only require the people who have been diagnosed positive to share a lot of information with uh, government employees that are doing uh, contact tracing. In our case, the risk levels have been quantized to four bits. And the behavior information, so how do I convert my expected contagiousness, for example, into different behaviors? We have only considered two bits of information here. So that's like just four levels from normal to uh, quarantine at the other extreme. Again, from a machine learning perspective, what we're trying to do is predict that viral load. Because if you're in a region where you have a, a high viral load, then you want to have a stronger isolation, for example. And we're going to use information about the recent past. So because we know that after two weeks, most of the time, you should know, uh, you should be through that temporal curve. We look at uh, the last two weeks of data from on the phone about your past symptoms and the uh, encounters information that has been connected about the encounters you've had and so on, and test results. Let me explain quickly a little bit about what this kind of uh, information about symptoms can do compared to currently you know, used manual tracing and also binary tracing, which is what you find, for example, in the, in the Apple Google protocol and, and many uh, systems that have been put out there use binary tracing. So we call it binary because the only information that is being communicated is this one bit that uh, either you know uh, you you had a positive test or you met with somebody who was positive. So this one bit of information is is the only kind of information that is being communicated, which is great from a privacy perspective because you you know it's harder to trace things if you only know one bit. 
but somebody were to catch that information. But unfortunately, by doing that, you first of all, you to reduce the number of false positives and false negatives, you rely on a very strong clue, which is, okay, you've got to resolve is positive. So then you share that information. Whereas if you're allowing yourself to share more, to, to record more information like symptoms, then um, you can provide a much earlier warning signal. As soon as I start having symptoms like, you know, coughing, maybe, you know, I could share that information, not exactly that I'm coughing, but like, what's the expected contagiousness of somebody who's coughing and is a male in their 60s, right? So, so that kind of information, not that I'm a male in, in my 60s, but rather the, prob- the probability of infecting others or the expected contagiousness, that's the thing that I would like to share with others that I've met so that they can change their behavior. So what we see in this figure are three timelines of a uh, character, Jim. On Wednesday, uh, Jim has a uh, risky contact with a stranger. And then later, the stranger actually is starting to have symptoms. Under manual tracing or uh, digital uh, binary tracing as is currently done, that information about the stranger's symptoms doesn't get to me. It's only much later when the stranger gets a test, it might come to me. And with manual tracing, it might come to me even later than the test itself because of you know the human people, the human factor in the loop. It, you know, it's often at least a day. And then sometimes when the manual tracing is overwhelmed, it might be several days before the information gets back to you. Somebody calls you. All of that time that information is not propagating is crucial time that you could have warned somebody who was maybe not yet uh, symptomatic and is, is infecting others. So in the timeline, as soon as the stranger shows symptoms, my phone would receive some kind of message, very few bits of information, but enough to tell me that I, I should be more careful. And you know, I, I could change my behavior recommendation to a slightly higher level. And then later, when the stranger's symptoms grow worse and it's more clear, the probability that they are infected, then again, that information would come to me and I might decide to not go to a restaurant or not go to a place where I would have otherwise met people and potentially infected them. So that's the idea of early awareness and how it can save lives because the people who might not yet know that they are infected can get early warning or early clues because of the um, other people they've met who have stronger information because they're you know more downstream of the uh, disease stage to help me assess and become more aware of my own infection status and thus change my behavior and avoid infecting others. So in order to evaluate different strategies, contact tracing methods, what we've done is we've built this uh, epidemiological simulator where you can play with the policy that each person executes so that policy, as I said, changes their behavior and changes the messages that they send to others. And so in, in here, we're comparing the three strategies, the rate of the spread of the virus. So when R is greater than one, the virus, the number of people infected increases exponentially. When R is less than one, it decreases exponentially. And of course, the, the larger it is above one, you know, it, the exponent is larger. And, and vice versa when it's uh, less than one closer to zero. So, so we want R to be small and we want it to be less than one. At least we want to push it down because you have to understand that these techniques are far from you know, perfect because they rely on noisy information. So this is going to be one tool in the arsenal against the virus. 
Okay, so what are we seeing now? Uh, we'd like those curves to be low, but this is a trade-off, right? So if I spend more time with other people because I'm constraining myself less, then everybody behaves in average according to this. This is the number of contacts in average per day per human. Um, then the virus will spread more, in fact, exponentially more when you're above one. And so you, you have this trade-off. If I were to restrain my freedom totally, I don't see anyone, then R would be zero. In practice, of course, we can't achieve that. What we want is the curve to be lower, but it's important to understand that, that trade-off. In, in principle, we can choose to be anywhere we want. Societies right now uh, take collective decisions, you know, different governments make different choices where we might choose to be more or less on the, on the left or more or less on the right where we are willing to tolerate more people getting infected uh, because, uh, in exchange for having more freedom. Because maybe, maybe that freedom is important, for example, for people to um, survive because they need to work to, to, to feed themselves. So this, these are not obvious trade-offs, but it's interesting to show results in terms of that trade-off. It's a sort of Pareto curve, if you want. I'm going to move on to the other project about discovering drugs to fight COVID-19. So we, we've been looking at two approaches, one sort of shorter term and one longer term. The shorter term uh, approach to fight to find drugs is to take existing drugs. And actually, uh, you can take, uh, you can try to find a single drug that already exists and people have already done that. And we haven't found a single drug that, that really kills that virus. But uh, there's a lot of uh, current effort trying to find pairs or potentially triples of drugs. So think about the HIV virus, which at the end, you know, we, we fight with three drugs. The other option is to look over a much larger space, the space of all the possible uh, drug-like molecules. It's a huge space. So the advantage of taking existing drugs over creating new drugs is that uh, we can do that exploration faster in the case of existing drugs because we know their toxicity. We know what the side effects are. They've been tested. Of course, their combination could potentially make a difference, but for the most part, we, um, we take less risk uh, with existing drugs. When you create a new drug, uh, it might take a while before you realize that, you know, there is some side effect that you haven't seen. So so that's why it's good to do the two strategies. And this is what's happening around the world. Regarding the machine learning techniques, interestingly, for both approaches, you can use graph neural nets. So graph neural nets could be used to essentially extend the, the realm of applicability of neural nets from big size vectors to any kind of graph-like data structure. And so here, there are two kinds of graphs that we care about. There is the graph corresponding to the molecule structure. So think of each node being one atom, but it could be uh, a set of atoms that form a rigid part, for example. Or think about um, the graph formed by all of the molecules, all of the drugs that we currently know, like a few thousand drugs, as well as all of the protein that we know are associated with those drugs. Because often a drug um, is a molecule that's going to attach uh, it's going to bind to a particular protein. It's going to prevent the protein from doing its job, typically, or it's going to change the way the protein does its job. Proteins are like the building blocks of our body. So drugs are interfering with the normal operation of, of these proteins. And, and there's a lot of knowledge that already exists about the uh, relationship between those drugs and proteins and also uh, how different proteins are related to each other. And as we collect data about uh, you know, pairs of drugs that, that are tested 
in assays, then that gives us more information to put in this graph. So it's a huge graph, right? It's ha it has tens of thousands of nodes and different kinds of nodes, the drugs, the proteins. And what we're trying to, to do is make predictions about some of these edges. Like, so between two nodes, there is an edge and, you know, we want to know if there's a synergy and using that pair of, of drugs to attack the, the virus. Another machine learning technology that is really useful in, in these projects is reinforcement learning and active learning. The way we can use reinforcement learning here is to generate new drugs by going through a sequence of changes in the current candidate molecule by adding pieces, removing pieces. And then the, and then the reward we get is that the drug we're proposing binds with a high affinity to the target protein we care about. The active learning part is actually interesting for both projects, and um, it comes in the form of exploration that is needed here. What we're really trying to do here is create a, an interaction between the, the machine learning that's proposing candidate drugs and chemical and biological assays that are used to evaluate those drugs. Let's say that uh, we propose 96 candidates. This is that we have these 96 wells uh, assays, so we can, we can try 96 things at a time and get answers for these 96 candidates, uh, how good they are at doing the job. So that information becomes training, additional training data that could be used to improve the machine learning part. And then the machine learning is going to propose new candidates. As you iterate through this, you want to be not just trying to go for the best guess, but something that will bring you information. You want a kind of exploration. So where there is a drug where you're not sure that it really works, but there's a high potential that it could work. In other words, there's a lot of uncertainty, then you might want to try that drug. Whereas if you have a drug that you're pretty sure because you, you, you tested it in the past or because you had something very similar tested in the past, you're pretty sure that it's good, but it's not good enough. And, and there's not much uncertainty around its value. So, you know, it's probably not worth it. So even though the second drug that I mentioned looks like it has a better expected activity. The first one, because of the uncertainty aspect, is the one that we want to test in the essay. And so that's what active learning is about, to go for knowledge and trying to iteratively propose examples to be labeled, if you want, in order to acquire information so that downstream you will end up with a, a better solution. What you want to predict is both binding affinity, but, but also whether the drug is synthesizable and also whether it's toxic. So you train different neural nets for each of these things. And then we, we, can, we can check how good those predictions are. And then you have this active learning pipeline. I mean, and in many ways you can do active learning. But the general idea is filtering, right? So initially your guesses are not very good. You try some molecules, you get information by uh, doing those assays. That information allows you to retrain. And, and now you can focus more on the more interesting candidates. And then you, you're going to ask to label those candidates. Now uh, you collect more data and so on. Uh, so you have this sort of uh, filtering from uh, an initially huge number of potential molecules like the zinc data set that we use that has 200 million molecules down to a few candidates and once you have found candidates that are really good according to those biological assays then you can go to even the clinical trials there are a lot of people involved in this project and i'm not going to name them but i'm really thankful for everyone's contribution now is a good time to mention the um, 
collaborations because, as I said at the very beginning, many of these AI for social good projects, they involve uh, collaboration with people who have different expertise. So in the previous project, with contact tracing, we collaborated with people uh, with expertise in, in privacy, people with expertise in, in sociology and politics as well, because uh, there are you know political decisions involved. In the project with the molecules, we, you know we're collaborating with people who have expertise in chemistry and biology and, and medicine. So you really need to work with um, experts outside your field in order to make these kinds of applied projects successful. One thing that is particular about AI as a technology to solve problems is that it needs data, right? At least uh, the current brand of AI that uses machine learning. And in both projects, one of the biggest obstacles is getting that data in the first place. In the contact tracing, the problem is, well, is one is sort of privacy issues and the other is political issues. If people are not sufficiently convinced that they don't trust this weird technology, they're not going to use it. And if they don't use it, it's not going to work. And uh, there's a quadratic effect here that's interesting to mention. Let's say that there's only 10% of the population which adopts particular contact tracing technology, whether it's the, the kind of thing we did or others that exist out there. That means that 10% times 10%, that is 1% of the contacts. So the contacts are two people meet each other, right? So of all the contacts, if you think that, you know, randomly some subset is going to be visible to the system so that it can do its computations. If fraction P of the population adopts the app, then fraction P squared of the contacts are being used to make those predictions or those decisions. So with 1% of the contacts, it's not going to work, right? There's just not enough information being communicated between those agents. The trust and the political aspect here become really important. Let me close by saying a few words about the data uh, aspects regarding drug discovery. So here you need data coming from these assays. And these assays are very expensive. Unfortunately, I mean, those assays are also, also very worthwhile to drug companies. The problem is the current economic system we have for drug discovery with the pharma companies doesn't give them any incentive to share their data. Instead, they tend to like keep it secret. And uh, well, that's one issue that comes from the uh, profit maximization as an objective. Whereas if we were to do drug discovery where the objective was to maximize public health, then we would share data. Is there any way that we can change the incentive system so that the entities involved in data collection would share that data. And in, in fact, this is a more general problem, right? Drug discovery is a form of knowledge acquisition where really we're not building anything. Like the, the cost of actually producing the drugs is, is, is tiny compared to the cost of uh, acquiring the knowledge to find out the good molecules. And knowledge is not a usual product because there's a fixed cost for obtaining it and then essentially zero cost for sharing the information. It's like software, right? So, so there's a sort of market distortion, market problem where it, that makes the profit maximization not well aligned with the common good. And then one of the questions I'm asking is, you know, can we imagine other uh, economic models or rules of the game or incentives that would make those endeavors better aligned with the uh, common good? Thank you very much. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to the Future Positive Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit subscribe. If you enjoyed the show or have an idea for a future episode, tell us what you think on social. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as 
at XPRIZE. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.